0: Amen. We have a God who's mighty to save. Let's do a holy shout on three. My God is mighty to save. One, two, three. My God is mighty to save. Amen. Remain standing and take your Bibles for today's scripture reading. Here at LifeBridge, we affirm that the Bible is God speaking to us. We also affirm its authority, its sufficiency, inerrancy, clarity, and necessity turn to James chapter 1 verses 2 through 12 in your pew bible if you need one it's page 1199 James chapter 1 verses 2 through 12 follow along with me as I read count it all joy my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, He will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a privilege it is to call you our heavenly father on this day when we celebrate our earthly fathers. We ask you now to give us ears to hear your servant speak to us. Give us, Lord, hearts that rejoice in you and your purposes, even in our trials. Lord, give us wills to obey all that you require of us. And most of all, Lord, give us Jesus. He is our perfect sacrifice, as we've sung, our sinless substitute, our sovereign Savior. May we see him in your word preached this morning. May your spirit work in our hearts and lead the lost to salvation. The struggling to hope, the pretender to repentance, and the obedient to even greater felt faithfulness, Lord, we pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.
1: Pastor and author Mark Vrogrop shares... This illustration about the perspective in trials. He says, our house is destroyed, but my wife and kids are safe. That's what matters. He goes on and he shares that we hear countless testimonies similar to that from people after some kind of natural disaster in which they experienced. You can imagine The scene behind these people as they are now interviewed by a news reporter, Uh, a house might be leveled after a tornado, a a town flooded by the surge from a hurricane, or a a family now huddled together outside of their house as the fire department tries to extinguish the remaining flames of a house fire. I, I think you would agree with me that their perspective about their house was probably slightly a little different before it was destroyed. We might even be able to imagine a mom getting upset because a a lamp was broken as the kids were playing in the house. That would have never happened in our house, by the way. Never. I'm being sarcastic there in case you didn't figure that out. We might even imagine a dad getting irritated because a TV remote was Nowhere to be found again for the hundredth time. Again, that would never happen in in my house, at least not to me. Again, I'm being a little sarcastic. Or we might imagine a dog getting yelled at because she tracked in mud on the kitchen floor that was just clean. All three of those examples are real-life examples from my house. What I'm saying is, in different circumstances, when, when life is going good, it's all too easy to live in a way that, that doesn't reflect what we would normally value or what we should value as Christ followers. Author Paul Tripp identifies this struggle when he writes, and I quote, It is so hard for us to keep what is important important in our lives. Things that weren't designed to be as important now rise in levels of importance to us, while things that are important descend into unimportance. That's a struggle for all of us, he says. Now, why is that such a struggle? It's because we, we lose the right perspective in life. That's why. In fact, maintaining the right perspective is hard even when life is going great. But the trials of life kind of serve as a wake-up call to what is now really important, what should be important in our lives. In other words, as Mark Vrogrop said, our house is destroyed, but my wife and kids are safe. That's what matters. In fact, he goes on to state that times of suffering are never easy, but they can be quite clarifying. But those trials that we experience in life are only clarifying for us if we adopt God's perspective. And that's what James is is teaching us to do here in verses 9 through 12. In fact, the the big idea of this section of verses here in James chapter 1, here's what James wants to get across to you and I. Here's what he he wants us to leave here grabbing hold of, is that to persevere in these trials of life, we need to adopt, we must adopt, God's perspective on poverty and riches. Now remember, James is writing to Jewish believers who are facing trials, all kinds of trials, due to their persecution in life. They're being hammered by various trials. They they are suffering in many ways. And and James now wants to remind them in the midst of their trials to to adopt, to to embrace God's perspective on poverty and riches. Now, you've got to admit, at first glance, it looks as though James has suddenly changed themes here. And he's given us no forewarning about what he's doing. We've been talking about the trials of life, and now... All of a sudden, we're talking about poverty and riches. And so we, we learn in verses 2 through 4 why... He tells us why we can count it all joy when we face trials. And, and the answer is because God is using those trials in our life to bring us to spiritual maturity. But we must remain steadfast until God accomplishes His good purpose in, us, in our lives. We learned last Sunday... In verses five through eight, that this steadfastness that' is needed in trials, it requires wisdom, not our wisdom, but God's wisdom, which we lack. But God is good. God is so good, He's so gracious that he gives wisdom generously to all who ask in faith. But now, as we come to verses nine through 12, it looks like James is just switching themes when he says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. What's up with that, James? Well, it's not that James is a scatterbrain who can't help switching from one subject to the next. What we need to see here and understand is James is still talking about the trials of life in this section. Except now he's telling us that to persevere in those trials that come to all of us. We not only need steadfastness in those trials, we not only need wisdom in those trials, James is telling us we also now, we need God's perspective in those trials. And specifically, he says, God's perspective on poverty and riches. It's obvious then that James is addressing two groups of believers here. He's addressing the poor and he's addressing the rich. You say, why? Why would James do this? Well, this is is what makes the book of James such a a very relevant book for us and such a practical book for us because it's dealing, as we said in the very beginning, it deals with real faith in real life. And James knows something here about all of us that's still true for us today. He knows that our economic situation is not incidental to how we cope with trials. In fact, we are more affected by wealth or lack of wealth than we like to think, especially when we are facing the trials of life. But James is reminding us of something here rather important. He's reminding us that the trials of life are this great equalizer among God's people. In other words, notice this in your notes, trials have this leveling effect on both the poor and the rich. In other words, the trials of life come to both the poor and the rich, and when those trials come, the poor will be tested in their poverty, and the rich will be tested in their wealth. And what James Here is suggesting is that our outlook and our reactions can be significantly swayed by where we find ourselves on the economic scale. In fact, it's it's somewhat common. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've done that for a, a, quote, poor person would say to themselves, man, I just I wouldn't mind swapping problems for the rich person. Think I'd rather have the rich person's problems be easier to deal with because why they're rich and we're tempted to think that we maybe have thought that ourselves but the bible is pretty clear that the the problems of prosperity are as intense as the problems of poverty Indeed, the problems of prosperity constitute a a more deceptive threat to a committed life with God. In fact, trials remind, and this is what James is getting at, trials remind the poor that they are rich in the Lord and therefore they can lose nothing. And trials remind the rich they dare not better trust in their riches over Jesus Christ because they can lose them all. And in So let's discover here what it means to now adopt God's perspective on poverty and riches in the trials of life. Here's what James wants you to see. Here's what he wants you to know. Number one, whether rich or poor, boast wisely. Whether you are rich or poor here this morning, boast wisely. So whichever end we find ourselves on the economic scale, James' advice to us is the same. We are to boast wisely by boasting in our position in Jesus Christ. What that means is we don't boast in our financial position. We boast in our spiritual position in Christ, the position we have before God, the the position in which the gospel of Jesus Christ has placed us in. This is what James is saying in verses 9 and 10. Let the lowly brother, and and we already saw earlier on, that that term brother that James uses, that is a gender-inclusive term. That's just James' way of, of identifying all believers, both male and female, Believers in Jesus Christ. James shortens it up, and he says one term, brother. So whenever you see the term brother in the book of James, it's referring to all believers in Jesus Christ, male and female. And James is saying here to us, let the lowly brother or believer boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Now, when James says that, that is a very, very different kind of boasting to what we normally see in the world around us. This word boast, it is sometimes translated as exalt or glory, and it basically means to rejoice. And so James is In some ways, he's he's taken us back to verse 2 and he's given us another reason to now count it all joy when we face trials. But this boasting or this rejoicing runs opposite to what our culture boasts in or rejoices in. And this presents a struggle for us as Christ followers. In fact, if I may quote Paul Tripp again, he frames the struggle this way. He says, in case you hadn't realized it, you live in a materialistic, pleasure-centered, despiritualized, no-eternity culture. By means of the values of that culture, life is all about the pleasures of material creation because there is no spiritual world to them. And there's no eternity. And so the culture would look at the poor person and find nothing in that person to be excited about, nothing to boast in. Nothing to celebrate. If the game is material possessions and physical pleasure, this person is miserably lost. And so here's the struggle. We can't live in that kind of culture, this kind of culture he's describing, without somehow, some way being influenced by it. In this struggle to keep God's perspective on poverty and riches. Is a struggle for all of us here today. And so we need to hear what James says about boasting wisely. James is, he's actually calling for two different kinds of boasting here. He's saying the poor believers should boast in their exaltation, while the rich believers should boast in their humiliation. But what in the world does that even mean? To boast in my exaltation and And if you happen to be rich here, which, by the way, according to the world's definition of rich, that's pretty much all of us here, we're supposed to boast in our humiliation. But what does James mean by that? Well, notice this. The poor should rejoice, in other words, in their high position in Jesus Christ. Why? Because they have been exalted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, In James' context, the readers, the the audience that he's writing to, most of his readers were poor. In fact, they had become even more poor through their persecution, and so some of their trials, at least, were economic in nature. This word lowly that James uses, uh, it suggests someone who is lower in economic status, and so they are poor, And when you are poor, especially in that day and age, you are powerless. Even today, in most of our societies, and especially in our Western culture here, to be poor is to be something of a failure at life. That's that's how poor people are considered most of the time. That's how they're viewed. And so the poor then, in our culture, they are... are, uh, They are, what's the word I'm looking for? They're they're motivated then to to strive for more, to dream of a better existence. We see this in all the advertising uh, through the media. Uh, The media entices us with these images of success and wealth. and, And the message is very clear with all of that. This, this is what you should strive for. The bigger house, the nicer car, the more glamorous image. Because with wealth, You can now feel important. You can now be somebody. And though we might like to think otherwise, we here as Christ followers, listen, we we can be easily taken in by that message. Now, we, we know as Christ followers that this is not what life is about. We know that all these things in the world are not what we are designed to find satisfaction in. But it's so easy to start daydreaming of how much life would just be easier, life would be more enjoyable if only we had more money. Who here has not laid in bed or sat at their office daydreaming about that? We're all enticed by that. But this is where the gospel comes into play. You see, the message of the gospel, James is telling us, is that to even the poorest and most destitute Christian is that in Jesus Christ, you are a somebody. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And so Paul writes in Romans eight seventeen. now if we are children, that is the people of God, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And so because we are co-heirs with Christ, listen, we have this incredible inheritance to look forward to. So just think, all that the Father has for His Son has now been extended to those who are in Christ. Christians who are poor. Listen, they need reminding of this at all times, but especially in times of trial. And again, most of James' readers were poor. And he's now urging them that when the world looks down on you because of your lowly financial status, you need to remember that because of Christ, you are spiritually rich. The tendency, though, in those times... In our lowly status, financial status, especially when trials come, the tendency is to become rather bitter towards God. To resent God because of our lowliness, our financial status. We're we're not the rich. And James tells us, listen, no, no. You need to rejoice. In fact, you need to boast in your high position in Jesus Christ. Though the poor, though they might be low in the world's eyes, they have been exalted by the gospel. In Christ, they could not be more highly regarded by God the Father. This is what we need to focus on in times of trials. In fact, the poor should even rejoice in the fact that that your circumstances, your trials are actually leading you to trust Jesus more. And in the absence of your your physical resources, you are now driven to boast in your rich status as a child of God. That's what James is saying. And he's addressing addressing those on the, the lower side of the economic scale. But now he comes and he also addresses the rich. And he says the rich should rejoice, not in their high position of Christ, even though that is also true about them, he says the rich need to focus and rejoice on their low position in Christ. Why? Because they have been humbled by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, again, many of James's readers were poor, but some of them were rich. They were wealthy. Now, James is not saying that it's wrong to be rich. He's not saying it's a sin to have things or stuff. The issue is, are you being ruled by riches? Are you trusting in your riches more than you're trusting in Jesus Christ? So James says the rich should rejoice in their low position in Christ, for they have been humbled by the gospel. In other words, James is calling on those who are rich to look beyond now their earthly status in life and remember who they are from God's perspective. Now, Again, in most societies across the world, and especially in our Western cultures, money not only gives you options, it also creates honor and esteem in the eyes of the world. In fact, everyone tends to perceive the rich as being, quote, problem-free. Why? Because they have money. And because they have money, they have resources, they can even mitigate any of the trials that come into their life through their money, through their resources. and all of that, there's an element of truth to that. We'll recognize that. Yet that attitude can combine to create a, a very false sense of self-security, self-sufficiency, and even godless pride. You start believing that you are somebody in this world all because you have wealth. The rich can even become intoxicated by their wealth. Jesus talked about the deceitfulness of riches in Mark 4, verse 19. In other words, Jesus is saying there's just something inherently deceptive about riches. In other words, when we have riches, it begins to skew The view we have of ourselves, it even begins to skew our need of Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 10, verse 22, talks about the rich man who who walked away from Jesus empty-handed. Not because he didn't want salvation, it's because he didn't think he really needed salvation. And why didn't he think he needed salvation? Well, I got riches to take care of my problems. He was so short-sighted. He didn't realize his problems were eternal in nature. And so he walked away from his only hope. Once again, we need to remember that the way the gospel contradicts the assessment of the world when it comes to riches. James, again, he's not saying that to be rich is automatically sinful. But he is saying that the rich need the same kind of reminder as the poor. They need to be reminded who they are before God. You see, for the rich Christian, no matter how much wealth they have, no matter how great their standing is the world, the gospel is deeply humbling. The gospel reminds us that that we must acknowledge before God that however rich we are materially, listen, we are utterly bankrupt spiritually speaking. We're in desperate need of Jesus Christ as our Savior. And so the rich need to embrace their their humiliation in the gospel. The challenge here, and I would venture to say for most of us, if not all of us, because by the world's standards, we are rich. The challenge for us is wealth can insulate you from humiliation in this life and that's really easy to get used to. And so we have to remember who we are in Christ. Listen, we are saved from our sins because of God's generosity, not because of our prosperity. In other words, we... We needed a spiritual handout, and that's what we found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lord says in Jeremiah chapter 9, he reminds us in verses 23 and 24, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches. That he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness on earth. Jeremiah says, boast in that. Boast that you know the Lord. In the end, the rich and the poor, they stand exactly in the same place. They are both 100% dependent on the grace and mercy of God Almighty. So James says, boast wisely. The second thing James says about adopting God's perspective on poverty and riches is whether you are rich or poor here this morning, think eternally. Think eternally. While we boast wisely in our position in Christ, we also need to think eternally. That is, we remind ourselves that that this life in which we live in, this life in which we see, in which we We work for, we buy stuff, this this life is temporary. It is not everything. And in case we miss this perspective, God's perspective here on poverty and riches, James gives us an illustration to kind of help us connect the dots on what it means to thank now eternally. Notice the illustration he gives in verses 9 through 11. We'll begin in verse 9. The illustration comes halfway through. He says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. And now he gives the illustration. He tells us why. Because, like a flower of the grass, he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So what does it mean now to think eternally and do so from God's perspective? First of all, we learn, we see here, that the rich should remember that their riches on earth will eventually fade away in this life. Excuse me. James compares the rich person in his pursuits He compares that person to a a flower that blossoms up and then dies. Now, James may have in his mind, he may be reflecting back and remembering what the prophet Isaiah wrote about this. Isaiah actually says in Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8, he says, A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? Listen now. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So perhaps James is reflecting on that passage of Scripture in Isaiah. Perhaps James may also have in mind the wild flowers that grew on the hillside in Palestine where he lived. You had these beautiful, beautiful flowers that were were beautiful for a few weeks in the spring after the rains had come, but but their beauty was short-lived after they wilted in the scorching heat. And so one of the great deceits of riches is the impression it gives of security in this life. That's the illustration James is giving us here. You see, riches in this life, it, it can... It's deceptive because it feels dependable. Our wealth. It's almost as if we can count on it to bear the weight of our lives, especially in a trial. That is, we can count on those riches. It will bear me up in the trials of life. It can be my foundation. And James is reminding us that is a false sense of security. Once we have enough money saved, The deceitfulness is this, that we we know we're covered. The trials of life can come, but we have the protected cushion of our money. After all, money enables the wealth or, or enables us to weather the storms of life, so we like to think. After all, this year, the stock market is showing us the volatility of riches as retirement accounts are shrieking so, so fast. And so, once again, here in 2022, we are reminded of this truth and perspective that James is giving us. James equates riches on earth to this wild flower in the desert that, that blossoms quickly, and just as quickly as it blossoms, it dies. In its prime, that flower It is a thing of beauty to behold, but its beauty is matched by its brevity. In fact, James says specifically, its beauty perishes. Did you catch that? He says its beauty perishes. That is a fitting statement, and such is the riches of this world. Its beauty, the beauty of riches fades. It perishes. How many people have gone to bed rich only to wake up poor? In the last year here, last five years, 10 years, 50 years, 100 years. And so let us, let us hear this morning, let us heed James' warning here in verse 11, where he says, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. In other words, James, is he is kind to us here because he's warning us. A warning is always a sign of love, by the way. When you warn your children of something, of of deceit or of danger, you warn them out of love. James is warning us because he loves us. He cares for us. He doesn't want us to get sucked into this deceitfulness and this danger. And the rich believer needs to remember that his trust cannot be in his wealth because it will eventually wither away as quickly as a flower in the scorching heat. Paul. Paul. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 17, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. In fact, James will talk about that in a couple of Sundays, how God provides us everything. He is the good and perfect father. And so if you are rich here this morning, James is saying to us, be careful. Trials will remind you that money cannot solve all your problems and all of the stuff that you own cannot cover up your hurts. One day, all that stuff that is taking up space in your garage, so much space, you can't even park your car in your garage. Listen, it's going to fade away. And the question is, will your life be built on those earthly resources or will your life be built on the spiritual resources only God can provide in Jesus Christ? And then James talks about the poor. And he does so in an indirect way. And he reminds the poor that they should remember that their riches in Christ cannot be taken away in this life. Now, sometimes we just need to be reminded of this truth. In contrast to the riches on earth that will eventually fade away in this life, listen, folks, our riches in Christ cannot be taken away in this life. They are secure. The stock market does not affect our riches in Christ. The government does not impact our riches in Christ. The economy, a war across this country and that country, wherever it may be, does not impact our riches in Christ. In fact, it's interesting, Psalm 49 mocks the rich man who congratulates himself, naming his lands after himself and thinking that his fame will now last forever. And it says in Psalm 49, verse 12, Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beast. In other words, the animals that perish. But Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 1, verse 4, that believers have an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So perhaps we should pray what Joseph Bailey prayed, Lord, burn eternity into my eyes. That's a great prayer to pray. Lord, would you just burn eternity into my eyes? In other words, burn eternity into my heart. that when I see this world today, I see it through your perspective and I think eternally. James is telling us the same thing. whether you are rich here this morning, whether you are poor here this morning, he is saying, thank eternally. Embrace God's perspective. And this ties right into what James says next about adopting God's perspective on poverty and riches. Number three, he says, whether you are rich or poor, live steadfastly. Live steadfastly. Now, again, if you haven't figured it out by by now, the book of James is one awesome book. It is so, I, I just, I love this book. I am enjoying studying it. This is the first time I've ever preached through the book of James. And uh, it's, it's an awesome book. It's, it's about, as we've already said, it's about real faith in real life. And this is what makes this book so practical. It's what makes this book so relevant for our lives today, which means that we can bring real questions before a God who's abundant in his grace and is awesome in his patience. And so of all the questions that we might bring before God, There's one question I think that all of us here this morning, we are tempted to ask, and that is this. Is it really worth it to live steadfastly in the trials of life? Is it worth it? Is it worth living steadfastly, faithfully, persevering in the trials of life, whether you're young or you're old? Listen, we all wonder that at times. As a Christian here, hopefully your desire is you want to follow Jesus Christ. You you want to obey God. You you want to live steadfastly. But it just seems like your, your reward for doing so is just another trial in life. It's one trial after another, and you can't catch a break. And now you're wondering, God, is it worth it? Is it worth remaining steadfast, living steadfastly? And so now, in the midst of another trial, you're wondering that very thing. And we all get to those places in life. We all wonder those things. And in those moments, when we're wondering that, that's when God's perspective becomes so vital in the trials of life. So notice now the perspective that James gives us here in verse 12. He says, Blessed. Don't you just love that word? Blessed. Blessed is that man who what? Who remains steadfast under trial. Blessed is that man who remains steadfast under trial. So immediately James answers the question for us. It is always worth it. And then he gives even a bigger reason why. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Folks, listen to me, church. This is the perspective that will carry you through the trials of life. And so when you are tempted to ask and wonder to yourself, is it really worth it to live steadfastly? Here's the answer you need to hear. Yes, it is always worth it to live steadfastly. Why? Because there is a great reward at the finish line. This word bless that James uses is actually the same word that Jesus used in the Beatitudes. We said at the very beginning in the introduction that James borrows a a lot in this book from the Sermon on the Mount from his half-brother Jesus. And here we see the beginning of that. This word blessed, it means to obtain God's favor, to obtain his approval. In fact, it's the approval or affirmation of God upon a person's life because of God's mercy that makes him blessed. And steadfastness, get this steadfastness grows and is sustained in the soil of God's blessing or God's favor. On our lives. Earlier in verses four through 12, 2 through 4, James told us that trials are, are God's chosen means, His instruments to, to bring us to spiritual maturity. And that's a great motivation to persevere in those trials. Hey, I want to grow up to be more like Christ, so I'm going to persevere. I'm going to remain stand fast. But now, here in verse 12, he tells us that when we, we remain stand fast under those trials, we are blessed. That is, we're blessed now in those trials, in this life, and then James adds on top of it, there is also this great reward that awaits us in heaven, and it is called the crown of life. Here's the deal. You and I here this morning, listen, we we will never live steadfastly without factoring in the perspective of eternity. And that's exactly what James is doing for us here. He is saying to us, listen, it's worth it to live steadfastly because there is a great reward at the finish line. So persevere to the very end. In fact, this word crown that he uses, it might create within your own mind this this image of royalty with some gem-studded crown worn by kings and queens like we see in England. But it more than likely refers to the kind of honor an athlete receives after winning a race, after persevering in that race triumphantly. Paul actually talks about this in 1 Corinthians 9, 25, when he says every athlete exercises self-control in all things, and they do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we do it. That is, we run this race, this spiritual race, for an imperishable crown what's interesting the very same language is used when when jesus talks about the reward of of faithful endurance in revelation chapter 10 2 verse 10 listen to what jesus says through the vision of john he says do not fear what you are about to suffer behold the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And so, this crown of life is not so much this, this physical crown with great splendor, but rather it is a symbol of receiving the glorious reward of eternal life after persevering in the trials of life. In other words, Here's what James is saying for us. These trials of life that that God allows into your life, listen, they test your faith. And if we withstand the test of life, what we do in those having withstood, we prove now that our faith in Jesus Christ is genuine. It's real. And at the end of those trials in this life, God now meets us. He's waiting there for us with this crown of life. And so once again, we can count it all joy because these trials are reminding us that we are not living for something in this life. We are living for a reward that is yet to come. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 4.17. He says, for our momentary light affliction. And I always have found that a little how should I say? Like, Paul, are you sure about this? Because it doesn't seem like it's momentary. But in the perspective of eternity, when you think eternally, that's why Paul could say that. For our momentary light affliction in this trial, Paul says it is producing for us an absolutely incomparable, eternal weight of glory. Now, Don't miss how James ends, though, here in verse 12. Look at it in your Bibles. Look what he says. James says in verse 12, we'll read the whole verse, he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. And then notice, which God has promised to those who what? Love him. James is simply, he's he's basically saying the same thing as the Apostle John in in those letters of John. You see, our love for God is one of the evidences of genuine faith in God. And so James is also identifying now our, our motivation in the trials of life. Motivation, we need motivation. What is our motivation? James is saying, listen, our motivation is this. Our love for God is our motivation to remain steadfast in trials. So please note that our love for God, it does not exempt us from trials. Rather, our love for God is our motivation to persevere in trials. As one commentator says, he writes this, Our progress to the crown is expedited not by our powers of endurance but by the depth and the reality and the pervasiveness of our love of God. Think back to when Jesus was on this earth right after his crucifixion and resurrection, and when Jesus restored Peter after his denials before Jesus' crucifixion, what did Jesus ask Peter on the shore of Galilee? He asked Peter three different times. Peter, do you what? What? Love me. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Why? Why would Jesus ask that? Because our love for God, that is the necessary motivation to serve Him, especially in the trials of life. And so if you're struggling here this morning to remain steadfast in trials, then perhaps I would encourage you you need to examine the reality and the quality of your love of God. Because our love of God or for God is the spiritual motivation here to boast wisely, to think eternally, and to live steadfastly. You see, the Christian who loves God, the Christian who knows that God loves him, will not fall apart in the trials of life, will not give up in the trials of life. That Christian will persevere in the trials of life. Why? Because he is secure in God's love, and he is motivated in his love for God to remain steadfast, knowing that he is blessed now, even in the midst of trials, but more importantly, he is blessed for all eternity, because... He has the crown of life waiting for him at the end. Fathers, let me leave you with a few takeaways here to think about, to ponder. Dads, what do you love more than the Lord here this morning? Dads, are you motivated by a love for God or more, a love for yourself and the things of this world? Dads, let me encourage you to make it your aim to to elevate your affections for Jesus above all other affections, including your family, including your career, your hobbies, and the things of this world. Ask God to help you specifically to, to boast wisely in your position in Christ, to think eternally and to live steadfastly knowing that there is a great reward at the finish line for you as a believer in Christ. With your heads bowed, as we go to the Lord in prayer, Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us your perspective on poverty and riches in the trials of life. Thank you for your grace that enables us to boast wisely, to thank eternally, and to remain steadfastly. And so, Father, let us see what really matters Let us see what is most valuable as we face these trials. And may our love for you be our motivation to persevere, knowing that there is the reward of eternal life waiting for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Fathers, I leave you with this benediction, this blessing. It's true for everyone, but fathers, listen again to what James says. Blessed is the father, I'll say, who remains steadfast under trials. For when that father has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those fathers who love him. God bless you, dads.